Nicholas Bornels of Capitaling, and I have the privilege to welcome you to another panel of, of today's forum. This panel uh, is focusing on the new landscape of bank finance for shipping. Access to capital is one of the most critical topics for a capital intensive industry such as shipping. And uh, I am delighted that we have with us today uh, an amazing panel. We were just uh, chatting before coming live that, uh, yes, we cannot be together in person and shake hands, but uh, this gives us the opportunity to bring together experts from all over the world. So this connectivity allows us to have tremendous uh, content. And I will turn it over to Dan Rogers, the partner from Watson Farley Williams. I would like to thank each one of you for your support uh, over the years for making this forum a great success. And uh, uh, Daniel, I will let you introduce our speakers. They don't need introduction, but still the floor is yours. Thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. Um, I'm Dan Rogers. I'm a partner with Watson, Farley and Williams in their New York office. And I have the pleasure today of leading this panel of well-known bankers and people, I think, who have a real insight as to what we're going to be talking about today. And so today we're joined by um, Philippe Wunschman of uh, Berenberg Bank, who is Global Head of Shipping. And Philippe joins us from uh, Hamburg, uh, Germany today. We also have uh, Mr. Shreyas uh, Chibokalti, who is the Global Head of Shipping with Citibank, who joins us from London. Also joining us from London is Ilias Katsoulis, who is um, uh, the global head of shipping and global credit and, and financing and solutions with Deutsche Bank. Then we also have Christos Tsinakos, Sakanos, excuse me, my tongue got twisted around, who's global head of shipping with DNB, and he joins us from Athens. And finally, we have Evan Cohen, who is a managing director and group head of maritime finance at CIT, who joins us today from Naples, Florida. And myself, I am in New Orleans, Louisiana. So we are really all over the place today, but we're here together now. And so without further ado, I think we'll just turn over to our agenda and begin this conversation. And I think the first thing we wanna talk about today is what happened during what I refer to as the COVID times of the last 18, 19 months. And I think the first question to be posed is, did the pandemic permanently or only temporarily alter the commitment of your institution to the sector. And so the way it sets up on my screen, I'm gonna to start to my immediate top left and that would be Christos. How about, how, how are things affected by COVID at DNB? I think that um, things changed as time went by and as we started getting used to and living with COVID. I have to say that at the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty um, when it comes to what happens to banking and what happens to shipping. And, um, you know, we had to sit back, you know, try to understand, you know, which, which sectors we were exposed to. Our clients did the same. We had commitments. We had to honor, of course. We did new business, but very, very selectively. And as, we, as the months passed by and as we started getting more comfortable, I have to say that confidence came back fairly quickly in the shipping markets. We saw, you know, a couple of, of the shipping sectors uh, coming back in a very strong way. And we had the same, um, you know, reaction in the bank. At the beginning, banks, ourselves included, were quite cautious and uncertain about, you know, what lay ahead. But as months went by, I have to say, it turned out to be a pretty good year for financing. 
Uh, we've seen volumes increase quite significantly the past six months or so, I would say. And we have also seen uh, very high capital markets activity, which is also very important. Um, so I would say that uh, I haven't seen a reduction in commitment when it comes to banks, certainly not from the NB's uh, perspective. If anything, it's been uh, much, much stronger and we see much more competition uh, for good projects as well. Thank you. Um, Evan, what's the view from CIT? Yeah, there was really no real change in commitment. If anything, our commitment increased as the year went by. So in the beginning of the COVID period, as you say, it was, a, I guess, a bit of a question mark. So what's going to happen to the demand for container ships and for tankers? But we didn't shy away. And as it went on, we leaned into it. So we saw a lot of our good container clients benefit from the market that we didn't expect. Um, well, we've done, we've done more business uh, this year than we have in the past two years combined. So still committed, uh, even more so. And it's been, uh, to echo what Christos just said, it's been a very strong year for us. Thank you. Shreyas, how are things looking from City's perspective? Well, not really much more to add uh, to what Christos and Evan said. I think similarly, March 2020, I think everybody was terrified that this was one of those uh, meteor, meteor hitting the planet uh, and killing dinosaurs moment for, for shipping, but it, it turned out to be quite the opposite. Um, I think what, what we're seeing now really is we've ended up in a good place. Uh, cash balances, liquidity, leverage mostly is under control in the, in the shipping world. Uh, but I think now the next challenge is, you know, how do we finance the ESG um, overhang and stuff like that? So, you know, we've ended up luckily in a position where we can confidently address some of those challenges, um, which would not have happened uh, had, ES had, had COVID played out in the way we were expecting in March 2020. Thank you. Ilias, what's Deutsche Bank's view? How do you, do you find yourself in agreement with your colleagues generally? Yeah, I do actually. Um, it's a similar story for us. Um, I think we've we've been very busy the last twelve months, probably busier than in, in, in some recent years. Um, I think overall, my, my sense is that um, banks were kind of starved from deploying capital um, last a year before uh, because of the slowdown that took place as a result of COVID, and I think. A lot of banks um, were very, um, you know, tried to compete ag aggressively to kind of deploy capital over the last 12 months. I think that's been a benefit to borrowers um, who have had um, very strong availability of capital. Um, as I said before, we've also been very active in the market. Um, I think we have had the benefit also of a very healthy, you know, underlying shipping market, at least when it comes to container ships. And, and bulk areas for a period of time, which um, you know alleviates any concerns with respect to portfolio. So I think the focus has been new business, and, and I think kind of remains so as well at the moment. Great. Well, that, that brings us to Berenberg, and slightly different perspective possibly from Berenberg. But I'll ask you, Philippe, what's what's the what's the view? Yeah, thank you. I, I guess uh, quite the same uh, as the colleagues pointed out, but uh, let's remember that already in back in 2019, before the uh, pandemic started, I think fundamentally 
there was a lot of positive in, in, in the database about shipping, but we couldn't, couldn't really prove it or have told too many years to, to clients, to investors and to our internal senior management that shipping will do better in two years. And it never happened really. So I think for, for us at least, and, and how I do see it with uh, talking to investors, um, it is uh, a kind of proof of concept for shipping. Um, this, this last year, turned out to be uh, positive. It had its, its, its difficult times, the, the first half of 2020 probably, but, but uh, since then it has turned out to be a major uh, development for, for shipping. And um, I think we, we, we can underline only that, that this, uh, co coincidentally or not, uh, uh, shipping uh, comes out of the pandemic better, better than it started uh, into it, yeah. That's very interesting. Let me ask this sort of related question. You know, we've seen a fair amount of volatility in various market segments over the past 18 months. Tankers were up, then tankers were down, dry bulk's been up, containers are up. Do you feel that, you know, we're entering a more stable and predictable period going forward at this time? Or do you expect there will still be segment volatility? Philippe? Uh, okay, um, I, I guess um, we are fairly comfortable uh, for for the next 12, 15 months or so. Yeah, so I, I guess um, uh, the the container and the bulk market uh, are, are very strong at this point in time, and we we um, consider this to be stable for 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 that next period. I think the next challenge will come into twenty. Three when when first first vessels will touch base in the container segments from the new building uh, side and uh, all over the regulations uh, with regard to ESG will kick in in a, in a, in a, in a different way than you can see it today but you, you don't don't really feel it so it will will change or at least uh, bring a new a new perspective and the other point which which is worth mentioning in this respect in, in terms of ri risks that might turn up to is, is obviously interest uh, which might become a topic for shipping again after quite a while and i uh, we see more clients caring about this issue issue uh, when asking for hedging uh, strategies and so on and so forth so this is this is a topic which comes on the table of the cfos um, more than it has been before uh, but this, this again, uh, uh, for, for the next yeah, 12, 18 months, we are positive. Great. Evan, I know you guys are, are focused on tankers, bulkers, and container ships. I know with container ships, there's been a lot of reporting lately about um, a lot of new building orders, particularly in the midsize range. Do you think that that's going to provoke any volatility in that sector or any other segments that you uh, guys tend to be focused on? I think there's enough um, experience on this at roundtable. Everyone will appreciate. It's always going to be volatile. <laughs> That's what that is shipping. So are, are ship owners going to order more ships? Oh yes, they will. So <laughs> what what month or quarter they hit the water and change the dynamics of pricing? Okay, this you never know for sure. Um, yeah, there's lots of new buildings going to come out of the yard and container ships, so there will be a softening in. Well, that will be a pressure in the container market. Yeah, we just build that into, into our outlook. So will containers, I think you can safely say without making a prediction or forecast 
that container earnings will come down at some point and tanker earnings may improve at some point. So, yeah. Will, will, will that affect your pricing in any way? Yeah, pricing is usually not one of the first three questions. It may, uh, it may affect the leverage. It may affect the other security you wanna see. And sure, if we're competing against um, some of our other good friends doing senior debt, it may affect the pricing, but we look at other things first. Okay. Christos, what's your view of the next 18 months going forward? Do you see uh, a strengthening or a weakening in any of these market segments? Well, we have been through cyclicality many, many times. And, you know, all of us have financed, you know, CAPES over $100 million. You know, we've seen, you know, VLs earning $150,000 to $100,000 a day. We know the market is cyclical. The key is, I don't think anybody can predict what's going to happen in the next 18 months. But what we can do is we can try to figure out where we are in the cycle. And we can try to structure accordingly based on where we are in the cycle. I mean, if, you, if you're buying an expensive ship on the back of a very profitable charter, you have to make sure you amortize your debt very, very quickly. You have to make sure the counterparty you have is a very strong one so that you, know, you have relative certainty of cash flows. So I think rather than trying to predict the market, you know, what we try to do is try to put structures that make sense based on where we are at the cycle. And that's the only way to guard against you know, doing silly mistakes that we've, we've all done in the past getting carried away that we have a new reality now in containers, world trade has changed. And, you know, this is how it's going to be forever. The big issue, which complicates things even further, and Sharia's alluded to it before, is the ESG uh, elements, the uncertainty around uh, energy transition. And I think that is really a variable that we have not really dealt with before. That's what we spend most of our time trying to figure out, rather than trying to predict, you know, the cycle. Thank you. Shreyas, I see you nodding your head. What are your thoughts on this point? I think Christos and Evan have both nailed it. I think, look, it's, it's a going to be continuously volatile, as, as Evan said, that, that that's not going to change. And luckily, that keeps us in our jobs, because the whole reality is you need people who know what that means and manage to deal with it in the lending space. So that, that's not going to change. But I think one of the things that, you know, before we get to the ESG challenge and the next 10 years of the overhang of how we're going to finance it, there is a more immediate issue now, which is the energy crunch, which is unfolding as we speak around natural gas, coal, lots of things happening at the same time. And you're entering the winter period. So, so I think this, this is the type of stuff that causes the volatility that we are used to seeing, right? There will be winners and losers from this. You know, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how it will go. But if, as some people predict, you know, again, natural gas goes to $100, million, $100 per million BTU, you know, $6 per, per BTU, uh, per million BTU for transportation, which would translate to what, $200,000 for an LNG carrier, that it, it, it doesn't count at all. It's meaningless in the scheme of things. So who's bidding those volumes up? Who's going to pay for that? How are consumers going to react? All of this is going to unfold in the next six to six to 12 months. So I think we are entering a period of, for shipping and energy is a shorter period of extreme volatility right now, uh, not, not necessarily for containers and, and, um, and logistics generally, but those guys have their own issues. I mean, the more they, um, uh, the better they do as a result of COVID and the, the, the crunch in, in uh, supply chains, uh, the more cash they have and the more investments they're going to make on the logistics side, 
uh, and getting more and more into e-commerce as we've seen uh, AP Motor make some investments in that space. That is the right thing to do because that's where the, the more attractive part of the value chain is. But at the same time, you know, you, th these are, these are long-term multi-decade uh, uh, investments and, and, and uh, strategies. Will container shipping be profitable uh, in the same way as it is today for 20 years? No, it won't. You know, you're going to have to have uh, shorter periods of pain. And so again, you know, we have volatility, we have investments in areas that uh, have longer term strategies. Uh, you just need a whole bunch of clever people to deal with it. And that's, that's what we have uh, in the shipping space. So, you know, enjoy the ride ahead. Okay. Ilias, why don't you finish up on this point? What are your thoughts? Uh, no, I mean, all, all good points from, from the folks here. I mean, my perspective is that there is a bit of a degree of euphoria right now, just driven by the, the strength of the containership market and how well the, the dry bulk market is, is doing, which, which means sometimes people forget, um, you know, that we are still, you know, working in a very volatile industry. Um, the way we see things is very similar to how um, Chris has articulated before. We, we look through, um, you know, we approach things on not on a short-term basis. We, we look through structures, clients, fundamental credit stuff. Um, and we try to do business in, uh, you know, in current markets in a way that um, will not expose us to uh, unnecessary risks in the future if, um, if there is uh, volatility. Um, so that's that's our, our perspective, and, and I think that's the only way um, we can kind of credibly continue doing business in, uh, in, in shipping and, and avoid kind of historical mistakes. Understood. Let me ask, let me ask a follow-up question on that. Are there any segments that uh, the bank intends to focus on um, as opposed to, you know, just being generally available for any type of um, ship financing? I mean, for, for us, our, our, um, our offering to the market is, uh, I would describe it as fairly broad in terms of uh, the type of asset classes that we look at and the type of deals we do. So we don't tend to constrain ourselves into saying we will only do tankers or bulk carriers and so on. So we look at the credit fundamentals of, of, a, of any given transaction. Um, needless to say, there are some sectors that have more positive fundamentals than others. Um, you know, the, the you know the, the wind sector is clearly uh, something that's um, you know showing a spectacular growth. Um, the tanker market, from a valuation perspective, is very interesting right now um, versus some of the other markets. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that we focus specifically on those markets. We we look at transactions across. Um, but we, we, we do try to, you know, to maintain a balanced portfolio. And, and that's probably another way, another restriction that we as a bank kind of have in terms of how we, um, what type of opportunities we focus on going forward. Okay, thank you. Um, let me ask the same question to Philippe. Uh, what, are you, what are your views on that? Are there any segments that you see as being particularly um, interesting or are you going to, uh, be a more balanced portfolio like Deutsche Bank? I, I guess uh, we are a bit more, um, let's say, um, limited to, to the main liquid segments. Uh, this, this doesn't change and, and has not changed over time. So um, I think uh, except for cruise and offshore, which we don't do simply uh, because probably it's, it's not for our 
our size. Um, it, it's basically all segments we look at. And uh, basically we follow also uh, our clients and there I must say that uh, next to the bulk market, which, which uh, came out strong this year, uh, the, the container market uh, changed a bit in the sense that you for the first time since very long has could could see uh, contracted cash flows. So the whole uh, the whole um, assessment of a of a container uh, project change in this respect that you looked at an EBITDA case uh, rather than an asset LTV case uh, for the first time. So this changes the picture, changes the assessment, and you have to uh, do, do do your homework on that. Um, and I think uh, it's it's fair to say that that uh, we. Start to see um, some some investors looking at at uh, tanker uh, obviously more on the clean side uh, product tankers uh, um, and people are uh, carefully weighing their options and and uh, this is something we would obviously also um, look at uh, the, the the challenge here is is uh, do do the cash flows with historical metrics. Um, uh, are are there for for making it a a project? Yeah, that that needs a certain background at the moment, I guess. But that is that is a bit of a of a broader picture. But 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 really following uh, um, the same strategy as before. No no major changes here. Evan, what about at CIT? Are you going to continue to focus on tankers, bulkers, containers, or are you going to broaden the horizons? What's what's happening at CIT? Yeah, we're going to stay with what's worked. So we're going to keep our focus on the core sectors, including gas, uh, as Philip mentioned, similar to Berenberg. So no cruise, no offshore. Um, we're going to stick with, okay, what we know and we try to limit the universe of what we don't know. Um, me and my senior colleagues, we're, we're a small team, the, the four or five of us are always thinking about where we might move, you know, spread the, the margin a little bit where we could, uh, what other sectors are related. But at this point, it's been an academic discussion. So we're happy and we have more business than we can handle. So we're, we're gonna stick. Okay. Um, Christos, what's, what's the plan at DNB? I mean, we finance, you know, all shipping segments. The, the, the focus for us is not so much, you know, the point in the cycle or the shipping segment, it's more the client. If we're comfortable with the client, you know, if we know them for a long time, if we trust the management team, you know, we're comfortable, you know, with the investment decisions they make and we are there to back them. So we are not really saying, you know, tankers are low or containers are high and, you know, we do tankers and we don't do containers. We just look at business plans. We look at management teams and, you know, we look at people's track record and, you know, we back the people we know on the investment decisions they make. Uh, that's that's really our, our strategy. But, you know, we, we are active on all segments. Okay. Shreyas, how about at City? The same, you know, we're suppliers of financial services to our clients. Um, and uh, like all other suppliers to, to shipping, we, we will continue to monitor what our clients want and give them what it is and stick to the knitting, do what we, are, we do best. And if we have to do something new, then uh, support the biggest clients uh, and the top quality clients. That's always been City's uh, City's uh, uh, strategy. So continue to do that. I think this is opens the door to the next question we have on our agenda: is is the door open uh, for new clients, new business, or will you continue to focus on what have been 
uh, described as uh, tier one, uh, first tier clients. Um, Shreyas, what's what what's your what's your thought on that? I think the the straight answer is that we want to stick to the tier one clients because that's that's probably as you enter a period of volatility, it's it's uh, kind of silly to go out and do new things with people you don't know, right? So that's that's the straight answer. But there is a hidden answer there also, which is you know as we go into the ESG challenge, you can't take the approach of I'm just going to stick with the people that I know because there are other more important objectives as a society for us, which is to decarbonize. So if you're going to decarbonize, you cannot shy away from dealing with smaller clients who might have innovative solutions, who might have a smaller need, but somehow you've got to find ways to fit it, fit that into your target market strategy. And so the key element there is what support can governments and regulators bring to help banks do that? So it's not that new clients are to be shunned, it's more about how do new clients fit into the regulatory and capital management landscape of banks that we have put together over the last 60 years in shipping. They don't fit. So they, there is no way right now of easily financing these smaller clients. They don't have three years of profits. Some of them don't even have three years of financials. Uh, their, their, their assets are, are brand new in a, in a, in a niche segment. You, you can't get a liquidation value for it if you try it. So, what is the way to do this? It's to do it with government support and to find clear ways of linking bank lending and bank support to regulatory support so that you know maybe zero capital weighting or whatever it is, or ECA wraps with 100% ECA wrap from governments, and then tying that back to the decarbonization targets at a national level or at an industry level. So there is a lot of work to be done here. And so those new clients that we talk about really are going to fall into that kind of category, which is how do we deliver decarbonization while supporting new clients who are doing more in that space? Thank you. Um, Christos, I noticed you nodding your head in agreement with some of the things that Shreya said. Um, uh, yes. what, what's your thoughts? I think he summed it up very, very well. Uh, I think most banks, including ourselves, you know, are comfortable with their existing client base. A lot of us have gone through you know, long exercises over many years trying to figure out who, fi who fits and who does not fit with the various business models. Uh, so, you know, especially in a period of uncertainty, you're not necessarily out there looking for new clients. Yes, you might add the, the, the old client. You also have, you know, private equity who is investing in different vehicles and you might end up, you know, getting client, new clients that way. But the big question is what Syria said. You know, when it, what we see so far is that it's the bigger clients, it's the bigger names that are spending money trying to understand energy transition, making investments on energy transition. Uh, again, these projects, you know, are financeable, but they need, you know, a number of stakeholders to come to come along. It's not just, you know, bank financing that's going to take these projects off the ground. But when it comes to smaller players, you know, with innovative ideas, the bar is a little bit higher, and that's where you need structured support, uh, you know, above and beyond, you know, what banks can provide. You need other stakeholders to come together and provide incentives and banks will be there. I mean, we have our own targets. We have our own ambitions. You know, we've, you know, got our, 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 our you know, decarbonization and net zero goals firmly set up. And, you know, a number of, you know, new solutions, new clients, you know, could end up having innovative ideas that are going to shake up the industry. We need to be there for them, but we need help uh, from other stakeholders as well. You cannot look just at the banks to make this, to make this happen. Uh, a strange way to answer your question, but I think you get you get you get the feeling. It's uh, 
it, 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 it's, a tricky, it's a tricky minefield, and that's what we spend most of our try, time trying to figure out these days. You know, I noticed uh, Evan and Philip and Ilias, you all seem to be nodding in agreement. I take it generally that's uh, the, the, the view from your various institutions. I, I don't know, Evan, would you like to chime in? Oh, we definitely want more clients and more business. <laughs> we want to stick in our core markets, the core sectors, and that's, that's the ambition. Um, if we can do, you mentioned tier one. So that was the, I was thinking about tier one. Yeah, for those like larger publicly listed, great. We'd love to do more with the, the Gencos, the GSLs, the Navioses of the world. Um, the medium-sized companies that have 15 ships and are family or private owned, we'd love to do more with that. So yeah, the world is, the world is big. Fortunately, there's a lot of business out there to do. Good. Um, Philippe? Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting point. You know that Berenberg is obviously rather focusing on the good tier two clients um, ourselves. So we, we explicitly stick, stick to this, this clientele, which we think is, is, is a highly reputated and, and, and also well-experienced clientele for doing business with. So this will not change. But I, uh, um, I think um, I share the view of Shreers and, and the others that for the SME owners, uh, this this be, will become challenging with these uh, new regulations, ESG related, which come into the game. And I would rather extend this this concern uh, uh, to the to the question: Who will uh, finance uh, secondhand tonnage uh, at at all in the future? I think this is one of the major uh, challenges. Uh, and you know that that forty to sixty percent. Uh, of the world fleet is still in the in the hand of small and medium-sized owners, and those are those who are who still have these second-hand vessels. And uh, I think the industry has to care about this this uh, uh, the, the securing the, the the ongoing financing of the second-hand fleet of the world. Otherwise, we have have a kind of risk of of a what what I could call lost generation of vessels, which are today maybe between five and ten years old. Uh, and uh, uh, which still needs bank commitment for the next 10, 15 years. But uh, look at the regulation, how, how it comes in. And I think we all share this, this uh, that, that banks will have part, partly a role of, of kind of uh, um, um, ESG control or, or police yeah, in, in, in that way or, and, and take over some of the regulatory uh, um, needs. So we have to answer that question, how to finance second-hand vessels. And this is something I think we, we are under pressure from regulators, but also from investors to answer that question. And we need support. I, I agree from, from probably public sources yeah, who have to understand themselves that uh, financing second-hand fleet is something which is sustainable in a way. Um, but also I think the industry itself, so the ship owning associations, the IMO, all these bodies, they have to make an effort to explain to the public, to the world, to the policy leaders, uh, uh, how, to, how to run this, this fleet which is existing. And it's, it's not the same like exchanging your Volkswagen or your Mercedes at home. Yeah? Uh, it's, it's a big 25-year uh, investment, uh, multi-million dollar. So you, you have to answer this question, uh, in, in, I think, in, on, a, on, a, on a political level. 
And I think uh, otherwise we really have a risk uh, for this secondhand tonnage financing, which we like to, to, to further pursue. But um, sorry for being a bit long here, but I think this is something we, we think is, is a major uh, issue for the going forward. Thank you. Ilias, let me throw a little bit of a wild card at you. It's a question that popped up that is a little bit related to what we're talking about. And it, uh, it's, it states, when do you think stupid money will appear to provide the incremental slash marginal financing for completely new entrants who are pursuing a leveraged asset light model? Any thoughts on that? And then when? Yeah, when do you think such money might appear? Um, well, there's always, uh, you know, as we've seen also what happened in shipping many years ago, there's always um, people with um, more, more money uh, available. Um, and and we, we do live in an environment where there is significant availability of, of, of money and, and both uh, private equity available. Um, that is being pumping, pumped into, uh, into shipping in, in, in some way, shape or form. I, I don't think we are though in, in uh, a stage of the cycle where uh, in, in shipping, stupid money is, is being pumped in because um, the industry has gone through a lot in recent years and um, investors have kind of learned their lesson. Um, so I, I, I don't think I don't really believe that um, we are at this stage as we speak, what will happen in the future and, and whether um, someone, for example, may come up with a solution that seemingly deals with some of the uh, environmental aspects that turns out to be wrong. And that solution is backed by people somehow seen. Um, but I, I, um, I, at the moment, I, I don't really see stupid money being pumped into the sector. Great. But also, Great. If, I, if I may um, just briefly comment on one of your previous questions um, that you sure. raised because um, two things I'd like to comment I'd like to make. A, from, from, from our perspective, um, we, we have um, a slightly different kind of business model whereby maybe because we have the ability or we are a growth business in shipping, we, we do have the um, appetite to see more clients and, and invite more clients into our books. We're also focused on um, the, the right clients, like, like everyone, has, everyone else is. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is um, echoing some of the comments that were made by, by, by the panel. Uh, one other aspect that I think is important and is creating, um, you know, continues to be um, raising the bar for, for the type of business we as banks do is the regulatory aspect, which Sometimes we do, we do forget these days because we, we focus more on the ESG aspect, but I think the, the, the regulatory aspect is, is still um, requiring, um, you know, poses a high bar for banks doing business going forward, um, skewing kind of towards kind of better quality counterparties. And, and that's something that we, we need to keep in mind that uh, it, it's something that hasn't gone away either. And it's part, I think, of the, the, the array of problems that we're facing as an industry. Uh, and, and some of which kind of Philip kind of alluded to before that, that we need to deal with um, as we move forward. Thank you. I, it's very nice to hear that. Um, you know, we've talked a, a, a quite a bit about um, 
ESG in various responses to these questions thus far. So why don't we sort of dig into that a little bit more directly? And I guess the sort of broad question that I have is how do you factor ESG principles into your lending strategy? Are you focused really only on the E portion of that? Or do you also want to have an impact with your clients on the S and the G elements? And um, just randomly starting up, Shreyas, what's the, what's the view from City? Um, I, I think it's just a matter of um, measurement and difficulty, isn't it? Because we would love to have a full impact on S and G as well. Uh, but but right now we're starting with E, and I think I think it's it's the measurable aspect as 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 defined, let's say most most um, uh, ably by the Poseidon principles. So you know we, we are beginning with that. Uh, we have we have um, uh, me- mechanisms now in place for reporting. Uh, it's a it's a sea change from what it used to be. So I think we're focusing on the E, but we also have softer conversations with clients about S. And in some cases, the, the governance aspect uh, doesn't play a major role. We're very confident on how things are going uh, because that's part of our onboarding and, and constant monitoring process. So, uh, so I think you know, E, I would say, is the primary focus with softer conversations on S uh, from time to time. Christos, what's your view? I, I think I, I agree, but you know, slightly different, different angle. I think banks have always been focused on S and G. Uh, when it comes to seafarers' welfare, when it comes to governance, when it comes to KYC, even stricter now. So these have been major areas of focus. What is really new or what has really you know, come as an, as, as, as an avalanche is the, the, the focus on, on, on E. And you know, yes, the Poseidon principles have been a gigantic step to give us some visibility on you know, what's the carbon footprint of our portfolio. We did not even have a number on that before. Uh, and, and, and you see a lot of focus on E just because it's new and just because it's so big. The other two we've always you know, been focused on has been part, have been part of our credit process throughout. Uh, yes, you know, we're focused on them. Yes, you know, more work needs to be done. But E is really what is revolutionizing our industry now. Thank you. Evan, what's your view? Uh, I very much like what Christos just said. The S&G has always been embedded in, in, the, in the KYC process, on the onboarding process. Um, funny, for such an old industry, the S and the G is a focus on that has been around for a long time. And on the, <clears throat> on the environment, on the, on the E, yeah, that's such an important part, that revolution of how the market is treating owners and who needs to have fuel efficient engines and the ballast water treatment plants. That's, that's an inevitable part. It's now in the DNA of a business conversation and how a ship owner is operating his assets that we finance. So that's a great progress on the E and that's an important, you know, that it's so re- relevant now in S&G. It's an important part already there. Uh, Philippe, do you agree that S&G has always been there and it's E that needs to catch up at this point? Yeah, I think um, generally, yes. Even if I, I would, for us at least, underline, and, and maybe that's that's also because our clientele is, is maybe on this tier two, more privately owned side, and that's still the G, uh, so the whole governance side, even if we follow this obviously for very long, yeah, is it, still 
something where we do a lot of education day by day. Yeah, just just uh, uh, take um, uh, these uh, OECD common reporting standards. Uh, take uh, the EU list for for blacklist of of states, which which also include uh, Panama these days. Yeah, just the world is still the world's biggest ship registry. So. We do a lot of education in this this area, and uh, you, you just mentioned the soft talk. It's it's soft talk, but but it's it's uh, let's say uh, yeah friendly recommendation, so to say, and and even a bit more on that because this becomes becomes a topic where we don't compromise like we maybe were able to do in the past uh, when shipping was always connected to offshore and, and, and these kind of things, yeah. Uh, but uh, otherwise, I agree, the E is the major topic for investors. And you know that we have these debt funds with these investors, and they ask questions about this. And, and, and so it's, it's basically learning about this and educating your credit analysts, but also educating your investors on that. Yeah, that's, that's a constant exercise. And I think we all agree that this takes a major part of our, all of our time uh, right now. Thank you, Elias. How 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 do you view this question from Deutsche Bank's perspective? Yeah, no, I I, I believe that the the social and, and governance factors um, um, in will will need to define kind of corporate strategy, operating procedures, and principles going forward in a um, you know in a strengthened manner. I, I think the um, we do all um, have been taking to these factors into consideration so far, but I think part of ESG is to kind of set measurable metrics um, and, and incentivize clients to do better in, in, in those aspects. And I think there's, you know, there's room for improvement, both from a client perspective in, you know, in adequately reporting, for example, such measures, but also from, from our perspective in, in, in encouraging, um, you know, the SNG part of, uh, of, of ESG. Thank you. Um, let's switch over to green projects in general and the financing for them. And in particular, I want to talk about offshore wind. Um, obviously, there's been a great deal of press about offshore wind, and there have been a pretty wide spectrum of views whether this is a gold rush or not for owner-operators, given the limited number of ships that may actually be needed to uh, handle these projects, at least here in the United States. Um, and, you know, the question arose, I think, is, at least for this panel, is can the banks do it or are the banks willing to do it on their own in terms of the financing that this industry is going to need, given the very high costs of some of these ships, particularly if they're going to be used within the Cabotage or Jones Act trade of the United States? Um, Evan, um, since you're, you know, here in the U.S., what are your views on that? Yeah. I guess there's, there's two comments there. One is um, well, certainly we're supportive of the Jones Act uh, trade and we see the advantages there and it's a unique business. Um, offshore, you know, the commitment to offshore supporting vessels, that's not really our core focus. So it's important and if we see a traditional vessel working there and it has that kind of um, Employment, yeah, well, that's win-win, definitely. But we'll try not to stray too far away from the asset type. Okay, 
Christos, what about DNB? How do you see your commitment to this sector, especially given the enormous amount of uh, offshore wind projects in, in Northern Europe and that I'm sure the bank has been involved with in some degree? No, I think it is an extremely interesting space. I think clean energy is really, you know, what everybody's focused on and is definitely the way forward. You know, we like the sector. We are very active in the sector. Um, having said that, and you mentioned it very, you know, clearly before, these are, you know, projects that require a lot of capital expenditure. Uh, and, 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 you know, to really take them off the ground, you need stakeholders to collaborate and, uh, you know, and come across. And banks like ourselves will definitely be there in the middle structuring and, you know, putting various, uh, you know, uh, tools in place, be it, you know, Expo Credit, be it, uh, you know, green funds who are willing to invest uh, in the space. And we will be very happy, we will be very happy to, uh, to bridge all this. But it's, uh, it's really collaboration. I think it's, it, it's an interesting sector. I think it's going to keep us very busy in the years to come. And for us, it's, it's an area of very big focus, yes. Thank you. Um, Philippe, what's, what's the view from Berenberg? Uh, as I said, um, uh, offshore in the shipping has not been our focus so far. But uh, Berenberg has a bigger, uh, let's say, ex sector ex expertise in offshore wind projects in general, so on the renewable side. And um, let's put it this way, if I had the time, uh, I would love to uh, um, look for a more integrated approach with my colleagues over there. We always talk about this over lunch, but we, we never do it because uh, uh, their industry, our industry keeps, keeps us busy every day. So we should, should make it more integrated, but that, that's maybe something uh, more medium term. Okay, Shreyas, how do you see it? Um, well, to, to go back to your question, you know, is it a gold rush? No, far from it. It's uh, A gold rush would be characterized by lack of regulation and controls. This is extremely highly regulated. It's The marine aspect of it is a very small part of the entire supply chain around, uh, around generating electricity from wind, whether on land or on, at sea. So I, I don't think it's a gold rush. I think there are lots of fragmented uh, pockets where you can possibly act. But then we come to the SME um, discussion again, you know, full circle, uh, you know, are these clients that you can support? So I think there is a lot of consolidation that needs to happen. And uh, the challenge ahead of us is to identify who will do that consolidation and what financial strength can we put behind this, whether on a government slash regulatory level or private equity or wherever. But money needs to come in and tidy this up uh, if, it's, if it's going to be meaningful. That's, I think you're right about that. Ilias, um, we're running a little bit low on time. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, uh, on this question? Yeah, no, I, I agree with the panel. I mean, banks should, should help out and will help out. It's an important area. In, you know, wind um, is a very important area. So uh, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm just stating the obvious here, but um, I don't think it's a gold rush. I think it's um, natural way towards energy transition and, um, people will get involved and there's money to be made. But um, I think from a maritime space, from a shipping perspective, there will be interesting project going forward to finance. And, and I think most, most, people, most, most banks would have interest in, in getting involved in the sector. Thank you. Let's just jump over to another issue that I know people wanted to hear a little bit about. It's geographical questions. 
Um, are there any new regional or international hubs that you see providing capital to shipping, or would it only be described broadly as the rise of, of, of Asian uh, entrance into the into this market? Um, I don't know who to what would anyone like to start with that? Maybe Shreyas? Yeah, I mean, I have a very short answer, um, which helps with the time. No, I, I, I don't see any new activity uh, out of Asia. We, we've seen the leasing companies and others, but um, the, it's, it's really still Europe uh, leading the way with, with some help from uh, some strategic investors um, uh, at the sovereign level. And of course, American public markets uh, also very active, Norway active. So it's traditionally the same uh, group of people, really. And that, that, that actually leads to a slightly longer answer, sorry, which is we need new money. We need new blood to come in and, and sort of shake up how we're going to deal with this decarbonization challenge. Thank you. Christos, what's your view? I mean, there is always, you know, money available for, for good projects. And, uh, you know, U.S. used to be really the go-to place for bonds and equity. I think Norway now uh, is really, uh, you know, up there. When it comes to Asia, I, I don't think we can underestimate the impact that leasing houses have had on uh, on shipping. Extra credit agencies also have been uh, instrumental in filling gaps at times when uh, when banks have not been overly active. Um, also, responsible private equity uh, has stayed in the industry. You know, some of the smaller players have come out, but some of the bigger ones have really, you know, been here and they have made a difference. Nothing new, really, but more variety than we used to have in the past. Thank you. Elias, what's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, no, I agree. Nothing new. Um, I think um, the entrance in, in, in you know, capital providers entering the market are, are not really linked to geography or more in terms of the product. So, you know, we, we have a lot of alternatives and we also have uh, increasingly so infrastructure funds get involved in, in shipping. I think um, all these investors have diverse, diverse investor bases, part of which could be in Asia. Um, part, part, part not. Um, but overall, I think the, the space is, is a bit more interesting than it was, you know, maybe like three, four years ago. Okay. Um, Philippe, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, just uh, maybe that, that some two things maybe to, to observe a bit further down the road is, is first, um, what happens in Asia? Uh, um, we have seen, for example, Japanese banks uh, being hit by the aviation crisis, uh, and then this also, let's say, making them looking looking a bit more carefully at shipping for a while. Um, uh, and um, let's see how how this China real estate, uh, um, let's say, development turns turns uh, develops further. Yeah, and what this means then for their lending capacity for shipping. That's the one point. The other point is obviously. Uh, and this is positive that uh, maybe new, new sources come in outside the banks and, and then again inside the banks, because obviously then if, if industry comes in with contracted cash flows, this might bring other commercial banks back to the scene, uh, being able to finance projects. These are the, the two, two, two little comments I, I, I'd like to make here. Well, that's fine. Thank you. I see Nicholas has rejoined us. So that means we are officially at the end of this panel. And I'd like to thank our panelists for their insights and input here today. It's been all very interesting and engaging. And I am very pleased we've had the opportunity just to ask the, the questions, which is the easy part. So Nicholas, over to you. Well, I would like to just say thank you very much. As expected, this has been a tremendous panel. And thank you, Dan. Thank you, Christos, Evan, 
Ilya, Shreya, and Philip. Thank you to all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.